Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. 1 Samuel chapter 18. We are going through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. A lot's happened to get us here. But I want to read uh, something to you. Some of you have read, uh, read the book, The Hiding Place. It's by Corey Ten Boom. And she and her sister, Betsy, had been arrested along with their father by the Nazis. They had been hiding Jews from the Nazis in their home. Raise your hand if you've ever read that book. It's like one of my, it's in my top ten favorite books of all time. I would encourage you to get it. It'll bless you uh, immensely. Written by Corey Ten Boom. But she and Betsy, her sister, and her father had been arrested. They had been hiding Jews uh, from the Nazis in their home. They were Christians. They loved Jesus. And they had been betrayed by a man in their community named Jan Vogel. He was a Dutch man uh, who was working in cahoots with the Gestapo. And he was responsible for many people being arrested. And, 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 of course, many of those people lost their lives. And now, as a result of their ordeal, their father had died in a concentration camp. He was an elderly man. And Corey was filled with hatred for this Jan Vogel. And she wrote at one particular moment, if Jan Vogel had stood in front of her, she would have killed him. But Betsy, her sister, had a different response. And Corey writes Betsy's words, or writes this response. She says, Betsy, I whispered one night when I knew that my restless tossing must be keeping her awake. And it kept her awake because instead of one person being per bunk, there were now three because of overcrowding in the concentration camp. Betsy, don't you feel anything about Jan Vogel? Doesn't it bother you? Because she's filled with hatred, right? She's wondering, don't you feel the same way? But her sister says, oh, yes, Corey, terribly. It bothers me terribly. I felt for him ever since I knew. And pray for him whenever his name comes to mind. How dreadfully he must be suffering. Pretty amazing, huh? Corey then laid in a cot for a long time and feeling that his, this sister with whom I had spent all of my life belonged somehow to another order of beings. Wasn't she telling me in her gentle way that I was as guilty as Jan Vogel? Didn't he and I stand together before an all-seeing God convicted of the same sin of murder? For I had murdered him with my heart and with my tongue. Great book, great read. But when you, when you think about The Hiding Place, you think about Corey Ten Boom. And the reason we think about her is because Betsy died in the concentration camp, but she survived. And she went on to, to share her story and to minister to many, many people and write several books. But, but Betsy's not the central figure of the book, but she's so much like Jesus. It's just so impressive when you read the book. And we see a similar situation in 1 Samuel 18 through 20. Jonathan is not the central figure in the story. But he is a godly figure. He doesn't get all the attention, but he's a great example of what a friend is and a follower of God should be. And so we're just going to walk through this text. Adriana, uh, she read part of the text with us, and I'm going to walk us through the rest of the part uh, of the text. And then I'm going to come back and point out some things that we need to know, some important things that we need to know. And then we'll talk about how we apply this text to our lives. So turn there, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18. We'll be flipping back and forth, but I want to tell you the context. Remember where we are in the story. David had been anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel. 
the type of king the people wanted had failed them. Saul, he's a man, a head and shoulders taller than anyone else, was just like the kings from all the other pagan nations, right? He had disobeyed the Lord. He had been rejected by God, rejected by the prophet Samuel. David, on the other hand, was a shepherd boy, and he's to be the new king in Israel. But how will he get from the pasture to the throne, right? That's the question we've been answering the last few weeks. Firstly, he had musical ability. He played the lyre. It's like a harp. It's a U-shaped harp. And he played it well, and and one of the servants of Saul suggested that, that David, he knew of David, suggested he be brought in to play to soothe Saul when the harmful spirit that the Lord sent upon him would would cause him to be miserable, right? And so David was working part-time as Saul's music therapist, if you will. And when not playing the lyre for Saul, he's tending his sheep in his father's home in Bethlehem. And so Jesse, his father, sends him to visit his brothers on the front line where there's a battle going on. The the Israelites on one hill and, and the Philistines on another. Saul, who's supposed to be leading the Israelites, and then you have Goliath, the leader of the Philistines. But Saul's afraid to fight. He's literally shaking in his boots. So David, the shepherd boy, he takes a staff, he takes a sling and five stones about the size of my fist, and he takes them out to meet Goliath where he slew him. David's victory over Goliath proved what? It didn't prove that David was a really bad dude with a sling. It it proved that he was a man of God. It proved that God was with David to give him a victory over such a mighty foe. See, David was a man after God's own heart. And the way he handled himself in chapter 17 with Goliath reveals what a man after God's own heart looks like. So now today is the post-fight details, okay? That's what we're, we're looking at now. Chapter 18, verse 1 through 5. Now David has a title change after the Goliath fight. He's no longer the harp player and the shepherd boy. He is now a general, and Israel never had a better one. Verse 5 tells us that he was successful wherever Saul sent him. Why was he successful wherever Saul sent him? Because God was with him, that's right. Now David, he's now a full-time employee of Saul, right? Still playing the harp some. When, when Saul is troubled. But you know what? The, the, the trouble with Saul is now David. We'll see. And this first part of chapter 18 tells us that there's a relationship that's kindled between Jonathan and David. And after killing Goliath, a bond is formed between Jonathan and David. And there's something that he said after the fight that just intrigued Jonathan. And they had what we might call kindred spirits. They just loved each other. And Jonathan made a covenant with David, and he sealed that covenant, his first few verses, by giving David his robe, his armor, and his weapons. Verse 3, it says that he, Jonathan loved David as himself, and we're going to come back to that in, in a few moments as we walk through this text. But Jonathan, he was submitted to the will of God. I mean, think about it. Jonathan was the, the son of the king, and when the king dies, who becomes the next king? The son, right? And so Jonathan was to succeed Saul as king, but he understood God's will and and he submitted to it. He knew that David was going to be the king. Well, after the the battle with Goliath, Saul hears a song being sang by the the women. 
Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. This, this psalm brings about jealous thoughts in, in Saul. And, for, and verse 9 tells us from that point on, Saul and David's relationship is different. So David is day by day working for Saul, playing the liar, um, leading his army. But this jealousy in Saul results in him trying to take David's life. And if you look at these next few verses, several times it says that the Lord was with David. And that's significant. In fact, if you're the leader of God's people, that's the most important thing that could be said about you. Verse 13 tells us that David went in and out among the people. Well, think about it. That's Saul's job because Saul is the, the, the present king. He went in and out among the people. But now we see David doing that. See, David has become the de facto leader in Israel. So remember, we're trying to answer the question, how does David, who's anointed king, get from the pasture to the throne? And we see that happening slowly but surely, God's will um, becoming true. Verse 17 through 28, Saul, he wants David to die, but he doesn't want to kill him himself. So what does he do? He, he thinks of this sick plot to get one of his daughters to marry David, because David, if he takes one of Saul's daughters as his wife, will have to pay a bride price. And so by doing so, what Saul is going to have him do is go out and kill Philistines. And so the thought is, okay, if he has, to, he has a bride price, he has to go out and kill some Philistines, well, what's going to happen is the Philistines are going to take his life. And so Saul is really, it's really his hatred for David is progressing rapidly. His jealousy leads to fear, leads to hate. And so Saul says, you can have my daughter as your bride, but you have to bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins. Now, Hunter, they don't like voluntarily offer those things up, right? Uh, so what Saul, uh, Saul intended for David to do is to be killed by the Philistines. And so Saul's Plans are thwarted because David doesn't just bring back 100 for us. He brings back 200. Because why? Because God is with David. Wherever he goes, you see victory after victory after victory because God is with him. Verse 28, 29 says, Saul was continually against David. But it's interesting. Everyone else loved him. Look, look in your Bible. If you didn't turn your Bibles, I wish you would because there's something powerful about seeing God's word. It makes it a lot more clear, and it'll help you stay awake a lot better too, uh, Taylor, if you do that. Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. All Israel and Judah loved David. And look at verse 30. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So everyone loves David. I mean, Jonathan's son... Loves David, has, has formed this bond, this covenant, made this covenant with, with him. Saul's own daughter, Michael, is in love with David and married to him now. Everyone loves David except Saul. But we see as we move into chapter 19, this maybe subtle behind-the-scenes attempt to get rid of David gave way in chapter 19 to just outright murderous attempts. In chapter 19, Jonathan is told specifically by Saul that he's going to take David's life. But Jonathan pleads with his father. He tries to talk some sense into Saul. I mean, David had done nothing but good to Saul. Why would Saul want to harm him? So Saul, he 
for a moment, kind of gives up this, this plot and this idea, and he brings David back into his house and into his, his court, and he's serving Saul once again because of Jonathan. But this sanity, if you will, is, is brief because, once again, Saul tries to take David's life by throwing a spear at him. And this happened twice in 18.11 and chapter 19, verse 10. And so David flees, and so Saul sends people out to, to watch for David that he might take his life. But Michael, Saul's daughter, and David's wife helps him escape. So David escapes in chapter 19, verse 18 through 24, and he went to stay with Samuel the prophet in Naoth. Now Saul finds out about this in chapter 19. He sends messengers. So the messengers go, and they're going to bring David back to, to Saul. So Saul can take his life. And so when the messengers get there, there's prophets of God there. And so what they do, the prophets of God are prophesying. And so the messengers that go, they, they're, go, they're going to arrest David to bring him back to Saul. And when they get there, they begin to prophesy. Saul hears about that. He doesn't like it very much. So he sends more messengers to go capture David and bring him back to him so he can take his life. And they too hear the prophets of God in Naoth prophesying. And, and they begin to prophesy. So Saul, he does what good leaders do. Finally, you know, sometimes if you want things done, Rick, you got to do it yourself, right? And that's true sometimes. So that's what Saul's thinking. And he says, well, I'm going to go myself and capture David. And so he goes, and he sees the prophets of God prophesying. And what does Saul do? This evil, wicked Saul who's trying to take David's life, he begins to prophesy. And he says he does it day and night. So you say, well, what's significant about that? Well, it's, what's significant is that Saul is trying to take David's life. David is fleeing and Saul is pursuing, but no matter what Saul does, he can't touch David. Why? Because God was with David. David flees Nao and he meets Jonathan in this chapter. We don't have time to read it, but I'll encourage you to read 18. Many of you are doing that. Read 18, 19, and 20, and we'll pick up with 21 next week. But, but read this, this story as Jonathan let David know that Saul did intend to take his life, or I'm sorry, David told Jonathan, he's going to your dad's going to kill me. And, and Jonathan's like, no, he's not going to do anything without telling me first. So if he's going he's to harm you, Cadence, Jonathan says, I'll know, I'll know about it. And David says, Jonathan, be real. Be sensible. Your dad knows that we, we, we're, we're, we're good friends. He knows you're going to warn me. Jonathan had become David's informant. And so they, they come up with this idea, this, this plot to, to discern Saul's true heart. So David and Jonathan, they plot, David's going to go away. He's hiding. And they have dinner together at, around the king's table. And what's going to happen is that David's going to be absent from dinner. And when he says, where is David? He's going to ask Jonathan, because Jonathan, of course, is going to know where David is, because they're tied, right? And so he asks Jonathan, where is David? And they, they, they decide if, if he says, well, I'm going to tell them that you're gone back to Bethlehem for a sacrifice. So your family to participate in the sacrifice there. And if Saul is angry, then we'll know he's out to get you. And so sure enough, day two, Carly, they're sitting at dinner table, and Saul says, where's David? His seat is empty. And Jonathan says, well, we went home, went to Bethlehem to see his family, to participate in the sacrifice. 
and Saul loses his mind. So Jonathan knew Saul, his father, was, was really out to get David, and there's no stopping him. And so they devise this plan. He's going to go out the next day on day three, and he, he has target practice. He has three arrows. He shoots three arrows, and he has a boy going with him. He says, I'm going to be shouting to the boy where their arrows are. And they had this, this plan where he's going to tell him certain things that's going to signify to David whether Saul is really out to get him or not. And sure enough, he was able to tell him, my dad's going to, is out for your life, and uh, they have a sweet time together there. Um, and so that's where we end chapter 20. Knowing that Saul is after David, Jonathan knows that now, David knows that now. And so what I want to do real quickly is I just want to point out a few things that we need to know about this story. What are, what are the things that we need to, are most important about this story? Well, firstly, is that Jonathan was a great friend who submitted to God's will. Okay? And, and that's a given, isn't it? But I think it's important. They had these kindred spirits. I mean, there's, they had this commonality. There's something they had in common. In, in fact, in chapter 14, if you remember when Jonathan went into the Philistine garrison um, to battle, do you remember he had his armor bearer with him? In, in chapter 14, verse 6, he says, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. Because many people say, well, you're going into a garrison of the Philistines, and there's only two of you. And you remember what Jonathan said? He said, it doesn't matter if there's a lot of us or a few. If we have God, we're a majority, right? And so they, they go and they defeat the Philistines. That's in chapter 14, verse 6. But it's interesting in chapter 17, what does David say when he's fighting Goliath? He says, the battle is whose? The Lord's, yeah. So David says, nothing can hinder the Lord. It doesn't matter if there's a lot of us or a few. And David says, almost the exact same thing. The battle is the Lord's. There's this common vision, right? It's interesting, in my life, the Lord, since I became a believer, the Lord has always had men in my life. Seems like there's always one man in my life that we just, there's, there's kindred spirits there. And, and several of them have been here to preach. Maybe all of them have been here to preach over the last 10 years. But just kindred spirits. And what, what brings us together? I tell you often of uh, my buddy Dave Harry, who's in, he's in Colorado now. They were uh, teammates of ours, he and his wife Kelly in, in China. Great, godly man. Uh, awesome fella. But we don't have anything in common. The only thing we have in common is Jesus. I mean, if we didn't have Jesus, there would there'd be nothing we would have in common, nothing to talk about. But he is one of my best friends in life. It's because he loves the Lord. We just have a, a common love for the Lord, a common goal for our life because of the Lord. And that's what happened with, with Jonathan and David. They had a common, a common goal. They, they were loyal to one another as well. Um, and what's loyalty mean? Loyalty means I will never let you down or I will never intend to let you down. I think that's what... That's what that gets at what a covenant is as well. I, I, I'm never going to intentionally let you down. Right? And we read in chapter 18, verse 3, that they made a covenant, and, and Jonathan's given him his robe and his armor and his weapons. And in chapter 18 doesn't go into specific details of the covenant. They just seal it by Jonathan giving him his stuff. And I think what that signifies is that you're going to be king here. I have the royal stuff on here. I'm giving it to you because I'm not going to be king. You're going to be king. In fact, in chapter 20, verse 15, John says, do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. In other words, I'm bound to you. And I was thinking about that. It reminded me of Ruth. You remember Ruth and Naomi? Ruth, as she clings to Naomi in Ruth, chapter 1, verse 17, 
says, nothing but death, nothing but death could separate you from me. See, that's, that's loyalty. We see that with Ruth and Naomi. We see it with Jonathan and David. And so Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved David like himself. Where have you heard that before? To love someone like yourself. We think about the New Testament, right? In Matthew, the greatest command. What's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? Yeah. You love God with everything you have, right? To love God. That's the greatest commandment. What's the second commandment? The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we see Jonathan. It says over and over again, he loved David as himself. Yeah, this is a... Jesus, the, the religious leaders are trying to trick Jesus, and, and he says, this is the second one, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor depend on the law and the prophets. Yeah. Jonathan loved David greatly. I mean, he was a great example of one who loves his neighbor as himself. And so far as the Bible is concerned, his actions are really not above and beyond the call of duty. Because sometimes we think about Jonathan and his love for David and all the things he's doing. I mean, he's given up his, his job. He's given up his lineage. He's given up all that he had rights to. We, we kind of sometimes think, man, he just went above and beyond the call of duty. But not really. He just fulfilled his duty, right? I mean, sometimes we think if someone loves, loves their neighbor as himself, Haley, we think, wow, that joker is like a super Christian. Now, that's what God calls all of us to do. All of us, ordinary Christians, ordinary like me, ordinary like you, Christians to do, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. But another thing that we see about Jonathan and his relationship with David is he was submitted to the Lord's will. I mean, he's to be king. You know what that entailed? He was going to rule and reign over Israel and have all the, the benefits of a king. But what does he do? He gives his his robe, his armor, and he gives that all to, to David. Look at chapter 20, real quick, verse 13 through 17. This Jonathan speaking to David, but it, should it please my father to do you harm, chapter 20, verse 13, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, pay attention to this, verse 16. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Well, interesting. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemy. Well, at this point in time in Jonathan's life, who's like enemy number one? Yeah, Jonathan's father. Jonathan's father. I th think of Jonathan like he's like a John the Baptist type of figure. Tom Schreiner brings this up. I think it's a good point. You remember John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist is the forerunner to Christ. He's preparing the way for Christ to come. And what did John say about Jesus? He must increase. Jesus must increase and I must 
decrease. We see this with, with Jonathan. So Jonathan and David, they had something in common, didn't they? They were, were loyal to one another. Jonathan loved David like himself, and Jonathan was surrendered to God's will. Even though it meant he wouldn't be king, and David would, but he accepted that. And not only that, he welcomed that because he wanted God's will to be done. So my question for you is, are you submitted to God's will? Is God's will more important than your will? I mean, think about it. We make decisions all the time. And some of you here lately or soon, you're making some major life decisions, maybe about buying a house, about taking a job, about moving, about a relationship that needs to start, a relationship needs to end. You're making relationships. We're making decisions about relationships. We're making decisions all the time. So my question for you is, when you make a decision, do you consider God's will for your life? Are you surrendered to doing what God wants you to do instead of what you want to do? Significant question. Jonathan, a great friend. And he's a great friend because he's submitted to the will of God. Second thing I think we should take note of from this text is that evil, wickedness is irrational. I mean, think about it. Evil by, just is fundamentally insane. I mean, the wickedness in the world. I mean, we, we hear about it, we see it, and we think, that's crazy. Why would somebody ever do that? I mean, Saul's trying to kill David. And what has David done? Grayson, what has David done? He's done nothing but good, good after good after good, serving Saul, serving Saul, serving Saul. And you have Saul trying to twice, trying to pin him to the wall with a spear. That's insane. That's not even logical. It's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. But that's the way wickedness and, and, and sin and evil, it's, it's, it's insanity, isn't it? I mean, Jonathan appeals to reason in chapter 19. Jonathan's trying to help his father see how his actions are ludicrous, but they, they only last briefly as Saul continues to pursue to take David's life. But we think about our, our th things in our life, and we look at Scripture sometimes, Jeff, and we saw, yeah, he's, he's crazy. What's he thinking? Can he not see how good David is being, not just to him, but to the nation of Israel. But think about it. I mean, you think about these mass shootings that take place, seem like now on a daily basis. You think, man, that's insane. What are these people are crazy? Yeah, wickedness is. I mean, think about it. Having an affair when your bride has never denied you, birthed your children, tended to your household, but yet you're going to pursue someone else and be unfaithful. That's nuts. That doesn't make any sense. And time and time again, as I counsel people, how'd that happen this week? A wife, broken. Why? 
doesn't make any sense. You're exactly right, it doesn't. What about a woman who's choosing to be unfaithful to her husband when they know my unfaithfulness could lead to the breakup of our family and to my children's lives being torn apart? Why? It's insane. It doesn't make sense. Embezzling money at your workplace, committing fraud when you know that there's audits that take place. What's the chance of you getting away with it? A few thousand dollars. It does not make sense. Why would you risk it? Because evil and wickedness is insane. Breaking into a church, stealing things from the church office, setting off a fire extinguisher, just because you've never done that before, that's that does that's not rational. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Or a little closer to home, getting mad at my wife because I'm in a bad mood when she's done nothing but serve me and my children. That makes no sense. It's not logical. Make, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And, and, the, and it goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Lying at work. I mean, you're, you're being dishonest with your boss at work knowing that that could possibly lead to your termination. Yeah, people do it day in and day out. Why? It doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. It's not logical. It's insane. It's true. We see this Jonathan figure who's a great example for us. We see that evil is irrational. It doesn't make sense. And we see, thirdly, that God is sovereign, but we must act. I mean, God has anointed David. Think about the story. God has anointed him through this prophet Samuel to be king. But think about David. He's anointed king of Israel, but what does David have to do, Tess? David has to dodge spears, and he has to go into hiding, doesn't he? So is God's will going to be done? Of course. Nothing can thwart the will of God. He's anointed David. David's going to be king. It's just a matter of time. How's he going to get from the pasture to the throne? We see it step by step by step taking place. One of the main things we're learning here is God is sovereign. His will will be done. He keeps his promises. But yet God uses David and his David's acts as a means to an end. God will accomplish His will in our lives. But we must be responsible also, right? There's a means to an end, and that means is our responses to life. God's going to save sinners. There's this elect that He's going to save. God's going to save these people. But He uses people like you and me to share the gospel with Him. So they can repent and believe. So we do things like study and we lock our doors and we take our medicine and we go get physicals and we exercise. 
God's going to accomplish his will, but we have to act, don't we? David had to act, and we, we do as well. God moves and works among his people, but he uses our prayers to do it. We have to act and respond. So those three things I think are important for us today in our text. And, and just by way of application, I've given you a few things probably already that you're thinking about, hopefully. But I, I think we need to think about this contrast. We see Saul and Jonathan. And as we talked about First Samuel, there's a lot of contrast throughout the book. And I'll, I'll review those next Sunday morning. But there's, there's this contrast. Saul, how he responds to David, and Jonathan, how he responds to David, right? David's reign as king is inevitable. He's been anointed king of Israel. And like Saul, we can prolong our own desires, resist the inevitable reign of God's king. If we do, we do so at our, to our own destruction, right? I mean, here Saul is. He's resisting God's will. We have Jonathan surrendering to it. But how much are we like Saul? We can resist God's king, Jesus, right? Or we can relinquish any thought of reigning and submit to him. Just like Jonathan submitted to David. So there's a choice. Submit to the Lord and his kingship and his rule or we resist him. The only right choice is to relinquish any thought of attempting to maintain control, right? Relinquish any attempt of maintaining authority over our own lives and submit to him alone who is qualified to rule and reign over our lives. That's the two choices, right? Resist or submit. And to fail to take Christ seriously is to reject him. To resist Christ is to bring judgment upon ourselves because God is just. He's loving, right? We talk about God being loving God, but he's also just. Or we can submit to him and enter into life eternal. So I guess application number one is what will we do, each and every one of us? Will we submit to the rule and reign of Christ? Of course, this story is before Christ, right? This is the old covenant. But Christ has come and he is... King of kings, the Lord of lords. He proved that by the life he lived and the death he died and there's resurrection. So we submit to him or we resist Saul and Jonathan. So who we're going to be this morning? Are we going to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ as Jonathan submitted to God or will we resist him? And no decision is more important, right, in our lives. That's application number one. I think number two is Jonathan's just a great example for us, isn't he? And how to love people and be submitted to the Lord's will. And I think that's the key. I think don't get it backwards. He loved David and he submitted to God's will. No, he had to submit to God's will first before he could, because he's the reigning, he's the next in line to be king, right? So he had to submit to God's will before he could love David. And I think that's really important for us when we think about our own lives and how we treat others and how we love people. Are we submitted to the Lord's will? That those who are submitted to the Lord's will love people rightly. So it's a good example for us by way of application. Are we submitted to God's will? 
And the kind of the litmus test is, do you love people? Caleb, if, if you say, well, I'm really submitted to God's will, I, I really am, but you're not lover of people, then I would say, eh, that's wrong. Can't be. We submit to the Lord and we love people. You know, I love the Lord. I just don't like people very much. Conflict, right? Something wrong about that, right? Yeah, Jonathan is a good example for us. Follow in Jonathan's footsteps and be submitted to the Lord's will and love people well. And thirdly, I think know that wickedness and evil and rebellion against the Lord is insane. God, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, he sees everything, he knows everything, and yet we rebel against him, we do these insane things, like treat people badly, and we lie, and we steal, and we, all these things that people do. And sometimes we can, we can get real self-righteous, I think, and yet we think about other people. But what about us? I mean, the things we do, those subtle things, how we treat our wives, a little smart comments, a little digs, siblings, some of you, you treat, your, you treat your siblings terribly. Think about it. So I think just realize, maybe the application is, remember the insanity of our choices, wicked choices. So maybe this week when we're, we're about to, we're, we're not in a good mood, we're in the flesh, we're about to say something harsh to my kids, I'm about to say something ugly to my wife. Y'all remember, well, man, this isn't, why am I doing this? She didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. Why, why would I act that way? It's insane, right? And lastly, just by way of application is, remember, God is sovereign, but we must act. You know, there's a promise in Philippians. It's one of my favorite verses. He promises that the, the work he began in us, he will do what? Yeah, he'll complete it. He'll finish it, right? So I'm going to be like Christ one day. Because I'm a believer. I'll be like Jesus one day. I'll be in glory. I'll be with him. I'll be like him. But this, this progressive sanctification that is happening in my life, slowly but surely become more like Christ, I have to act. In order for me to be like Christ, in order for me to be like him, I've got to act. What do I have to do? I have to, one thing I know I have to do, I have to draw near to the Lord in prayer, right? Because I'm a piece of junk in and of myself. Left to myself, I'll do selfish things, self-absorbed things, right? Things I want to do that typically aren't things the Lord wants me to do. So I have to draw near to the Lord in prayer. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord, right? Again, why do we come to church? You're here today, not because you've got it all together. I come to church because I don't. I come to church because I'm needy. Because some people think that, right? It's kind of old school way of thought. You know, good people go to church. And I understand where, where they're coming from, but it's, no, it's messed up folks come to church, right? People that have needs, and I have needs. But what do we do? We draw the, we draw the Lord in prayer, and we read the scriptures, right? How we know God's will. How we empower to do what God wants us to do is reading the scriptures, being in fellowship with other believers. There's a reason why he tells in Hebrews not to forsake the, the assembling together of believers because I need to be around other Christians that love God. It's kind of contagious almost, you know? You see people that really love the Lord, hear the things they're talking about and the things they're learning. It's like, 
that, that kind of encourages me, right? So we need to do that. So God is sovereign, but we must act. And so what must you do this week for the Lord to accomplish his will in your life? You have to do something, right? That's the means to an end. Our responses are the means. So let's yield to the Lord in prayer and drawing near to, to him, praying for one another, right? Doing all those things. So it's kind of a wide, wide open application here, but we have application for those who have yet to repent, right? You need to repent. And, and, and that's, the, if you've been resisting God's rule in your life, and there, there's many ways of saying that. Are you a Christian? Are you born again? Have you repented and trusted Christ? Are you submitted to the Lord? All those are synonymous, right? But if you're not, you've been resisting the Lord, then if I summed up the Bible and Jesus' message, the apostles' message, the prophets' message, the, the message would be repent and believe. So I encourage you today, turn from your sin, your life of sin, living for yourself, and, and trust Christ's work on the cross as your own. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.